Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. You can follow us on social media, both on Instagram and Twitter, at InCommonPod, if you would like to connect with us there. And you can read our blog and find all of our episodes on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. If you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app. This Insight episode is taken from full episode 30, My Conversation with Ina Muller. Ina is a postdoctoral researcher in the Environmental Policy Group at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. She currently conducts research on anticipation, governance, and transparency in the politics of climate change, with the focus on the case study of geoengineering. In the clip, she gives the example of how the objects we govern are often constructed by powerful actors, including scientists. This is the In Common Podcast. You mentioned here that, you know, the role that these authoritative scientific assessments play, and perhaps it's linked to those individuals. I'd be interested to hear what you think about, yeah, the role of ongoing science and if the science itself and and the continual study of geoengineering as a potential solution and how that continues to shape and perhaps strengthen the reason why it continues uh, to be a political topic. Definitely. Yeah. So, so the last paper that I worked on was about, not, not the last one, but the third paper I worked on was about these um, authoritative scientific assessments and basically saying that a single scientist working on geoengineering is perhaps not so impactful, but if a small group of scientists manage to publish under the name of an authoritative scientific organization, such as the Royal Society or the National Academy of Sciences, um, or, uh, yeah, the yeah, there's several sort of uh, examples. So this is the UK and the US. But um, if if people manage to publish under a name of, un, under such an authoritative name, then of course the idea that um, is put into that report and the way that it's framed becomes quite influential. So um, one of the reports that we were studying was the Royal Society report. This is a very prominent report that came out in 2009 about geoengineering. It was the first kind of all-encompassing report that was trying to address geoengineering from all sides, and uh, including the governance issues. And in this report, they had chosen this differentiation between CDR and SRM, this carbon dioxide removal, and solar radiation management technologies on the other yeah, like making this division. And from that point on, everybody re- referred to this report and basically reinforced um, the definitions that they had used, which were not obvious at that point, um, because there were several definitions floating around, uh, several ways of conceptualizing geoengineering. But um, but the Royal Society report became the central document that everybody who worked on geoengineering would refer to in their introduction and use that as a framing, as a way to frame the subject and to frame the problem. Um, and and you can see that again and again. Uh, then later on, when you had other authoritative uh, assessments coming out under big names, that was the National Academy of Sciences, but also the IPCC, for example, different people would would re- like when when talking about geoengineering, they would refer to one of these reports. So the Americans would mostly refer to the National Academy of Sciences report because it was sort of their national thing. Um, and then the IPCC report, when when they started talking about geoengineering, that was also then used as a frame of reference to define what people were talking about when they talked about geoengineering. So these reports have a lot of influence in terms of 
shaping the way that we conceptualize a problem or, or an object and making it into this object. And that's what we mean by an object of governance, that something that is just an idea that's just floating around, that's quite fragmented, where many people have an, have different sort of concepts of, it becomes more tangible if an, if a, an authoritative scientific report frames it in a certain way, uses that word and defines it in a certain way and, and gives it certain characteristics, says these are the problems, these are the potential solutions, these are the ways that we have to go forward, it becomes an object uh, that's politically relevant, even though it might not exist yet. Like in the case of geoengineering, those technologies, most of them, they don't exist yet. They, they're they're There's maybe a few small prototypes somewhere, there's a few scientific experiments going on, but there's nothing, nothing that would resemble the actual technological intervention, nothing at that scale. And nobody's tried it yet. It's all sort of in the minds of researchers, but it's become a political object through mm, the endorsement, through the authority that science gives it uh, and, 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 and how it pre it's being presented as a, sol as a potential solution to the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, what can we learn there about the relationship between science and maybe the best way of saying it's non-scientific public or, or policymakers or the way that it's framed in the public perception. I mean, what, what are some of the more, I mean, what did you find in this particular example of geoengineering, which we maybe can yeah, extract about, about how those narratives are shaped within science and then communicated outside of them and then how they maybe take on a life of their own and they become adopted into, into a broader non-scientific discussion? Yeah, um, I think this is very applicable to uh, almost all areas that we have in terms of environmental governance. All governance objects uh, are somehow shaped at some point by an authoritative actor. And especially in environmental politics, this is often a scientific authority because many of the environmental problems that, I mean, many of them we're only aware of through scientific work. Um, and I think for the, for somebody reading these reports, it seems like, you know, this is, uh, well, this seems like an, like a, like a, you know, someone to trust, someone trustworthy, someone believable, uh, an organization that's been endorsed by, um, by, by countries, by, uh, by commu uh, communities of scientists over many hundreds of years. This is an authoritative body. And if they say something about this topic, then that means it has to be true or correct or factual. So then I rely on the information that this authoritative body uh, gives me but um, but behind the scenes you often see that it's not it's not like the entire scientific community gets together and decides consensually on what how exactly this is going to be formulated in that particular report it's usually a small group of people who are experts in that field uh, who've published a lot in that field so they they might already themselves have some sort of um, incentive to push forward the field even more because if you're an expert in a certain area the more the area grows the more publications you will have the more funding and so forth so so the trust and the um, the visibility that this authoritative organization gives to the concept is is basically is supporting whoever is part of writing that report and then you have to go back to find out who yeah who are the ones invited to write these reports those are the experts they're the ones who already put it on an agenda a longer time ago so it's just a small group of um of scientists i'm not saying that there have any sort of yeah I don't know, 
yeah, vested, well, maybe to some extent, they probably have vested interest in, in getting this idea forward. But I think it's important to, to understand that, that it's not like a, it's not the entire scientific community coming together and consensually agreeing on what exactly it is that we're going to do now here. It's usually a small group of experts. Um, and, and then it, it, I think it's quite important from a democratic perspective to, uh, well, to think about who is invited to writing these kinds of reports. Uh, is it really just the experts on the field, on the topic that we want? Uh, and, and, and just from one particular perspective or one particular discipline? Or, um, should we also maybe include people who are not experts in that field and who can sort of ask critical questions? And there's some, there's some examples of reports where this has actually taken place where, where you have a larger group of people somehow working with geoengineering, but very, very different worldviews and very different perspectives on it and very different, um, uh, opinions on it also. So there's one, um, by the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment. Uh, it's called, uh, it's Chetri et al. 2018. So it uh, came out not so long ago. But there they really, they write in their introduction on how difficult it was to actually come to a consensus because people had such different ideas and opinions about what's good and what's bad about geoengineering. And I think those kinds of approaches are important. So we, we should, you know, try and encourage that more, these more interdisciplinary approaches. To explore more episodes of the podcast as well as our blog, please visit our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast on just about any podcast player. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at IncommonPod. You can also visit our Patreon page if you would like to support us, and the links to all these websites can be found in the show notes.